Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Have you ever had God answer prayer and missed it, or perhaps almost missed it? If so, welcome to a club that goes back to the beginning of the church, and perhaps before. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Radical Renewal with this sermon entitled The Unexpected Triumph of the Kingdom of God, which covers Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 19. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning to all. So good to be with you gathered again, either here in person or online. Grateful for Uh, the opportunity to open God's Word. We continue in a series uh, that we started a couple of weeks ago, the second part of the book of Acts that we started last year, got through the first eight chapters last year, picked back up this year in chapter nine. So far, we've hit chapter nine and 10. Uh, We're not going to study today chapter 11. I'll give you a recap of kind of what happens in chapter 11, and we're gonna pick up in chapter 12 in this series that we're calling Radical Renewal, because what we see consistently throughout the book of Acts is God doing a renewing work in the early church to radically transform his people, uh, transform all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, uh, in a significant way, and then send them out into the world for the church's establishment and growth and for the kingdom of God to grow. There's so much that we can learn uh, as we study the history of the book of Acts. Um, As we move into where we're headed this morning, I'll start by saying this. There are many of us, maybe most of us, if not all of us, who have had a crisis of faith. Maybe you haven't had a crisis of faith, maybe you know someone who has had a crisis of faith, but at some level, we all are within arm's reach of a crisis of faith. A moment, or maybe a long season, of asking the hard questions deep within our souls. Uh, when, we, when we really allow ourselves to get honest with the difficulties and with the struggles and the circumstances of life and how that might reflect upon us in our emotional state, in our, in our trying to ration and reason what's going on, we begin to ask these questions. And it usually starts with this question. Do I really believe this stuff? <laughs> Do I really believe this? Do I really believe this so much about Jesus and about God and and the Holy Spirit and this Trinitarian God who came to rescue us and set us free from sin and death and hell and, and redeem us back into himself in such a way that we would actually begin to get tastes of the glory to come, the heavens and the new earth to come now, even now in this life? Do I really believe this so much that I would sell my entire life to it? Maybe literally sell all. But certainly spiritually, yes, Jesus meant what he said when he said, if you want to follow me, then you must take up your cross, deny yourself daily, and follow me. And there's these moments for all of us that come when we go, do I really believe that? Is it worth it? And it's almost always accompanied with some uh, significant life circumstance that just absolutely wrecks us. Something that punches us in the gut 
and causes us to go, God, if you were really loving and good, would, why would you let that happen? Whatever that is. You know, maybe it's, God, why in the world would you take my child from me? Why in the world would you allow me to go through such a horrible divorce? Why in the world would you let this loved one or close friend die in that horrific way? Why in the world would you let that happen, some catastrophic event in our country, whatever it may be? God, are you really in control? Are you really good? And we've all, if we wanna be honest with ourselves, at some level, we've all been there. We've all struggled with the reality that a momentary triumph of evil can sometimes cast us, throw us into this uh, monumental crisis of faith. And then for most of us, if not all of us, who have walked with Jesus for any length of time, we begin to see, A, that that's normal, and B, that it's so very often, so very often in those unexpected times of crisis when God shows up in the most unexpected of ways. Shows his faithfulness to be true, reveals his goodness under the wrinkles of suffering. Some of us are there, some of us can look back and say, yeah, my God is good, and I have certainly struggled with that question. Others of us are in the crisis right now. And the reason I give you this as an intro is because where we are in the book of Acts, if there's ever been a time, if, there's ever, if there ever was a time for the early church to have a monumental crisis of faith, it's at the beginning of Acts chapter 12, where we're gonna pick up today. Because... Things have been happening on a tremendous level thus far in the growth of the church. So far, Luke has recorded for us uh, conversion after conversion, miracle story after miracle story. It, it begins in Acts chapter two when you have the thousands who believe on the day of Pentecost. Soon thereafter, in, in Acts chapter five, you see the belief of the Samaritans. Uh, then you see the belief of, uh, even beyond the Samaritans, you see the belief of the Ethiopian eunuch. And so the gospel is going forward just as Jesus said it would uh, in Acts chapter one eight, where he says, uh, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. That was last week for us as we looked at Acts chapter 10. The ends of the earth is the gospel is going forth to the Gentiles, that, the, that this centurion Cornelius would believe upon Jesus was totally unexpected by the early church. Even before that, as we looked the week before, there was this uh, dramatic transformation conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And then what we're not gonna read today in Acts chapter 11 is that the gospel goes to this place called Antioch. Antioch is the first place that Christians are called Christians. Up until that point, they were called the way, this new way. But they're called Christians in Antioch. And what's happening in Antioch is that these people, the gospel has gone forth so far by this point to the Gentiles that people are going to new places and sharing the gospel that the apostles are even going, oh, that's cool. I didn't know it was going there. That's awesome. 
And so there's believers who take the gospel to Antioch and preach it to Hellenists. Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews. And these Greek-speaking Jews believe upon Christ. But the beauty of what's happening in Antioch, part of the beauty, is that it's such a mixed group of people that are believing and becoming the church there in Antioch. And so it says at the end of chapter 11, twice, two different times, it says, and a great many people are coming to believe upon Christ. And so it would just be naturally expected that there is some intense persecution around the corner because the enemy hates what's happening. And so that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 12. One thing I will say about Acts chapter 11, the first half of chapter 11, before you get to all that with Antioch, Peter's going back to the circumcision party, the Jews who have heard about what happened with him and Cornelius. And they are not too happy about it. They're going, whoa, hold on. You, you took the gospel to a Gentile home and you baptized them, but you did not require them to be circumcised. We gotta talk about this because you know, we, we still, there's still all these uh, things that have to be in place if they're really gonna be in the family of God. That's what the circumcision party was saying. So Peter goes to them and he just relays to them. Again, this is all that happened with Cornelius. I'm just telling you, this is what God did. Who am I to stand in the way of God that the Holy Spirit would fall upon these Gentiles? And the circumcision party listened. And they actually, uh, they listened to Peter, they heard him, and they, and they granted him approval. Now, the reason I bring that up is just a caveat, just to say this. As you read chapter 11 on your own, and you read that interaction with, with Peter and, and, the, and the believing Jews there, it is a beautiful demonstration of what it looks like to deal with conflict resolution. We desperately need a good example of that in our culture today. It's this beautiful example of Peter coming to them and with great humility saying, look guys, this is, I'm just telling you, this is what God did. And for them with humility receiving that and God leading these two people who at the beginning of the chapter are disagreeing into agreement through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's really a beautiful picture. But persecution is coming at a level in which we haven't seen it yet. Now you go, wait, hold on, Jeff. I mean, we're, we're almost 12 chapters into Acts and we've seen a lot of persecution. We, we saw the apostles, all the apostles get arrested in Acts chapter five. And an angel of the Lord came in the middle of the night and, and let them out and told them to go preach, keep preaching the gospel in the temple. That, that's pretty significant that all the apostles were arrested. Yeah, for sure. And didn't we see Stephen become the first martyr of the church? That he proclaims this, the gospel in, in one of the most beautiful ways that we have recorded in scripture and, and they stoned him to death. That's, that's pretty significant persecution, yeah, for sure. And, and then we saw uh, Saul before he was converted. I mean, he was just wreaking havoc upon believers. I mean, so many uh, followers of Christ being imprisoned and killed. Surely that's pretty significant persecution. Yeah, absolutely. But something happens that we're about to read that's a whole new level of focused persecution on the inner circle 
You remember when Jesus was uh, alive doing his ministry on earth before his crucifixion and resurrection? He had his 12 disciples, and then he had his inner three, Peter, James, and John. And, and those were his three closest friends and disciples here on earth. And what begins to happen in Acts chapter 12 is as if the enemy is saying, okay, if I can get those three, if I can begin to destroy the inner circle, then I can destroy the church. So watch what happens. Genesis, uh, Genesis. we're gonna go back to Genesis, guys. Um, Acts chapter 12, verse one, about the time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Quick, I'm gonna stop along the way, quick little note here. This is not the same Herod that was alive when Jesus uh, was during his ministry in life. This is that Herod, that was Herod the Great. This is his grandson, Herod Antipas, okay? Just as wicked of a heart as his grandfather. And he, it says that he's laying violent hands on some who belong to the church. Verse two, he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. It means he beheaded him. Had him beheaded. Go, okay, here we are. Peter, James, and John. James, the brother of John. James, the son of Zebedee. James, who Jesus called from being a fisherman and said, follow me. And he followed him and gave up everything to follow Jesus is now killed by the sword by King Herod of the Jews. If that was, wasn't enough, verse three, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is a part of the Passover celebration, the annual uh, Passover observance. So with that, they part of the, uh, the law there, if you will, uh, that the Jews believed with Passover and the, the celebration of unleavened bread is that there would be no criminal justice activities going on during that celebration and that any prisoners who were waiting to be executed would have to be executed after Passover. So that's exactly what happens. Verse four, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Did you catch how many soldiers he put over him? Four squads. That's 12 soldiers. Herod's going, look, look, whatever happened before when we arrested all the apostles and somehow they got out, it's not gonna happen again. I'm gonna make sure Peter doesn't get out. And we all go, <laughs> okay, Herod. Verse five. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer was made to God by, uh, by the church. Now, a couple of things I wanna point out that are gonna seem a little out of place because you're going, wait, they seem to be really full of faith. But as we read the story, you're gonna see what I'm talking about. One of the things that God does, this is the, the first key truth that I want you to see this morning, there's two that I'm gonna give you, is our triumphant God ushers in his unshakable kingdom in ways that stretch our fragile faith. Our triumphant God ushers in his unshakable kingdom in ways that stretch our fragile faith. And again, you're, you're probably reading verse five going, where's the fragile faith? Because certainly and, and, and absolutely, 
Kudos to the early church. They were a people of prayer. We have so much to learn from them about being a people of instinctive prayer. Of, of, it's our second nature to pray, if not first nature now in Christ. And so these are a people, yes, absolutely praying, but as we keep reading the story, you're gonna see how they're praying, but they're praying with fragile faith. One of the key apostles is dead. One of the other key apostles is arrested and he is on the brink of death. And so they pray. Watch what happens. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Do you get the picture of how guarded Peter is? Two chains. I read in one of the commentaries that, uh, that typically a prisoner would not be guarded by two uh, soldiers right next to him, one on each side, and he would only be chained, chained with one hand. But the picture this, that Luke is giving us is he's making sure we know how much Herod was trying to prevent something from happening. So he's chained on both sides and there's a soldier uh, sitting on both sides of him and there are soldiers outside the door of the prison cell that he's in. And we'll see in a moment, there's even more soldiers down the hall trying to keep Peter from getting out. Now, did you also catch what Peter's doing? He's within hours of being executed. He knows that Passover is over. He knows the law. He knows that they are gonna execute him as soon as they can, as soon as Passover is over. And what is he doing? He's sleeping. He's sleeping. He is so at rest in the arms of Christ. He is so at rest and at peace with who Jesus is and his awareness that the church is going to continue, that taking him out is not going to thwart the triumph of the church. He's sleeping. This is a very different Peter than we saw in the gospels. This is a very different Peter on the night that Christ was betrayed and they took Christ in uh, to be uh, in prison, if you will, to be held overnight for his execution the next day. Peter's in the courtyard and he's denying Christ three times because he's so full of fear. And now this is a spirit-filled, Christ, uh, spirit-filled Peter. A Peter full of the Holy Spirit who is at rest in the sovereign Lord's rule over his life, even in circumstances that certainly he would not desire. So he's asleep. Watch what happens. And behold, suddenly an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the, in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. Now this doesn't mean that the angel had some, uh, you know, had a two minute t- countdown. Like get up quickly. I, I, my power only lasts so long to keep these soldiers asleep. So come on, come on, come on, come on. It's not that. It's get up quickly in the sense of the way the Greek tends to read here, seems to read here, is it's more like, Peter, wake up. Peter is so asleep that he's groggy. It's like, come on, man, let's go, get up. And Peter's just disoriented. So disoriented that he doesn't even realize exactly what he's supposed to be doing, so the angel is having to give him specific instructions. He says this, and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals, and he did so. And then the angel said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Peter's in this stupor. And the angel is having to give him instructions every step of the way. 
Peter thinks it's a vision. That's what he says next. And he went out and followed him. He did not know, this is verse nine, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city where there would have been more guards. It opened for them of its own accord and they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. John Mark. This is the Mark who is the author of the the gospel of Mark, the second book of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He went by John, but then he became known as Mark. It's uh, in the early church, man, they just kept using the same names over and over again. It's a little confusing. Even in this chapter, there's more to come about how I'm gonna help you, help us see who's, who's being talked about because Mark's mom, Mary, not Mary, mother of Jesus, different Mary, not Mary Magdalene, different Mary, all kinds of Marys. This is Mark's mother, Mary. Got it? So this Mary is apparently, as we're gonna keep reading here in a minute, this Mary is apparently pretty wealthy because as you'll see, as we keep reading, she has a house there in Jerusalem that has an outer gate with a door and an inner door and in between it is a courtyard. That's, that's a pretty big deal. So there's something else here though that's really interesting. Peter and Mark were close, by the way. In fact, many theologians and scholars believe that Mark's gospel, the, the gospel of Mark is really Peter's gospel that Mark wrote down because of his friendship and his, his closeness to Peter. So Mark and Peter are close and Peter must have known that they would probably be praying at Mary's house, at Mark's mother's house, because as soon as he gets out, that, that's where he goes. Again, this early church, man, they were a praying people. Because it says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Let me just say this. It's a pretty big deal that Rhoda's named. There's a lot of times in scripture where the people that are significant in the story aren't named. Because the writers of scripture are just kind of like, look, treasure's in heaven. You don't need to know their name. But he wanted to name Rhoda. And I think it's because, I don't know, this is just a guess, I think it's because the faith that Rhoda showed here was the only exemplary faith that God's looking for. Because you're gonna see here in a moment, yes, they were together praying, but they were not praying with expectancy. They were not praying full of faith. But Rhoda, this servant girl, has meaning and purpose in the kingdom of God, not in the world that she lived in. I mean, my goodness, she's a female. That's first against her in that culture. Secondly, she's a servant. Nobody calls her by her name, but God does. God says, no, it was Rhoda who came to the door. And I love how Rhoda responds. I love what happens to her, okay? So she comes to the door. She hears the knocking. Everybody else is in there praying. She comes to the door, and look what happens, verse 14. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. I love that. Get the picture in your mind, okay? She hears Peter knocking. She probably walks up, and customary to the time, just like for us, she says, who is it? 
And Peter says, it's me, Peter. And she recognizes her, his voice and she goes, Peter! Ah! And she runs back. In her joy, she forgets to unlock the door and let Peter in. And she goes back to the people who are praying for Peter to be delivered. Right? That's what they're praying for. And look what they do. She says, verse 15, they said to her, she says, Peter's out there. They said to her, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. Okay, are you seeing now why I said God brings, he ushers in his unshakable kingdom in unexpected ways that stretch our fragile faith. These are people with fragile faith. Yes, they're praying. Awesome instinctively praying. Yes, that should be us. But how are we praying? Are we praying with expectancy, full of faith that God can do what only he can do? Trusting him to do the unthinkable, to do the unexpected, to do the magnificent, to do the radical. Will he always do that? No. But do we pray with that expectancy? Absolutely. And they weren't, so much so that when their prayers are answered and Peter's banging on the door outside, they call Rhoda crazy. You're out of your mind, girl. And they think it's his angel, which shows they had bad theology. But anyway, that's a different sermon for another day. But they think it's his angel appearing as Peter. They said, verse 15, she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. Are you getting the picture here? It wasn't just her going, hey, Peter's out there, out there and them going, oh, no, it can't be. And then after that one interchange, they went, well, let's go see. No, this was a persistent, I'm telling you it's him, I'm telling you it's him, I'm telling you it's him, and them persistently saying, you're crazy, it's his angel. You're crazy, it's his angel. Over and over again. Until finally, apparently, Rhoda persuades them to go check it out partly because Peter's still out there knocking. <laughs> Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. I mean, just visualize this. Peter's out there, just guys? Whoa, Rhoda, where'd you go? Hello? And then finally, they come down, they open the door and they see him and they were amazed. And what happened at this point is apparently they all just with jubilee probably yelled, screamed, celebrated because Peter says, um, verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He's like, Ooh, shh, 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 calm down. I don't know if they're awake now or not. Let's go in the house. I'm gonna tell you everything that just happened. Then he says, tell these things to James and to the brothers. You may go, well, hold on. I thought James was killed. This is a different James. I told you, lots of the same names. This is James, not the brother of John, who was killed by Herod. This is James, the brother of Jesus. This is the James who for a long time, scripture tells us, didn't believe in his very own brother. Can you imagine how hard that would be, by the way? You're raised in the same household of this kid who never sinned. So you're probably already jealous. And like, okay, seriously? You're not, not gonna disobey once? You can see why James had a hard time believing in his brother. But eventually his heart is quickened and he believes so much so now uh, that he 
We're gonna find, we're gonna see this even more in the coming chapters. James, the brother of Jesus, is the leader of the Jerusalem church. So that's why Peter says, go tell James that I'm not dead. They're not gonna execute me. I've been set free. Go tell James and the brothers and sisters. And then it says that he went away, that he went away to another place. And that means somewhere outside of Jerusalem. Verse 18, now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. (laughs) You think? And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. That was customary. If you were a guard, if you were a soldier, and someone under your watch, had the, he was sentenced to death, or she was sentenced to death, whatever it may be, and they got free, they escaped, then that, therefore that sentence is now on you. So these men were killed. I'm not gonna read it, but I want you to know how the story ends, how the, how the uh, rest of chapter 12 goes. It says that Herod went down to Caesarea, and the short of it is this, he gave a speech to these people that he had been in dispute with. And his speech was so magnificent that the people began to say, this is not a voice of man, but of God. And instead of deflecting that praise and that glory that they were saying to him, to God himself, he received it as his own. And it says that the Lord killed him right there on the spot. Second truth that I want you to see in this text is that Our triumphant God leads his triumphant church in the face of persecution by the means of prayer. Our triumphant God leads his triumphant church in the face of persecution through the means of prayer. Even prayer that's not full of faith. Are you seeing what happened all in one chapter of God reminding his people I'm the triumphant one. The church is absolutely unshakable. Beginning of the chapter, James is killed. Peter is imprisoned. Herod is triumphing. End of the chapter. Herod is killed. Peter is free. God is triumphing. Right? That's what God does, is he shows us in unexpected ways the ways in which his kingdom is not going anywhere. It cannot be thwarted. He is the triumphant God, and there is nothing that can stop him. No momentary triumph of evil can cast his church into a crisis of faith such that the church nor her God ceases to triumph over all of evil. It's a glorious picture. It's a powerful picture. Uh, Luke wants us to know by the end of chapter 12, verse 24, after Herod has died, he wants us to know it's set apart likely in your Bible as one sentence like it would be at the beginning of a paragraph. It's just one sentence set apart as if it were his own paragraph. And it just says this, verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. In other words, church isn't going anywhere. God isn't going anywhere. God and his church are triumphant in the face of persecution through the means of prayer. This is what God does. So four questions for us this morning. 
four really important application questions for us. Number one, do you live as though God is triumphant? Does your life reflect that reality that God is triumphant? Secondly, if you're a follower of Christ, do you live as though the church is triumphant? That nothing can thwart the unshakable kingdom of God as it is expressed and brought and magnified and expanded and multiplied through his church. Do we live as though that is happening even today? That no matter how many Herods, modern day Herods are getting little momentary triumphs of evil, it does not thwart us because we know the end of the chapter. We know the Herods are gonna die and that King Jesus reigns forever. We know it. Do we live as though that's true? Third question, do you fear persecution? On one hand, absolutely. Nobody says, please bring persecution. But I'll tell you this, Modern day church runs from persecution when oftentimes God says, don't run from it. I've brought it for a reason. I'm gonna teach you so much through it. There's a work I'm doing. I listened to a podcast this week of an interview of a man who's leading a church that is a part of the fastest growing network of churches, one of the fastest growing network of churches in the world. And it's not where you would think it would be. It's Iran. It's the underground church in Iran. And there was this interview that I came across that uh, with this man, his voice is distorted to where you can't make out who he is. And of course they don't have a picture of him or video of him and they don't say his real name all for his protection. This man lives every single day proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that he very well could be arrested and killed for it. And at one point, the person interviewing him says, are you afraid of death? Are you afraid of all this persecution? And he said, well, look, I'm human. Of course, I have fear. But it's not the kind of fear that makes me stop in my tracks and panic. Because I fear the Lord more. And what an honor, what a privilege to take the gospel to people who have never heard because I know that if I do die for my faith, I'm secure in the arms of Jesus. And then he pressed in pretty hard on the Western church. He said, guys, please stop saying things or persecution that aren't. Please stop being so afraid of losing things out of fear that we don't spend times on our knees praying about what God is up to. Are we afraid of persecution to the point that we're not seeing what God is doing? The work that he's doing to bring his unshakable king and a kingdom in unexpected ways that stretch our fragile faith? Lastly, Are you praying with expectancy? 
Are you praying, oh God, I don't see a way out of this, whatever it is. But you are the God of all creation who with the word of your power spoke everything into being. And I trust you. And I know, oh God, that you don't always answer everything the way that I would. And you do that because you know what I need better than I know what I need. You're the sovereign, all-knowing God. But God, I also wanna say this. I'm trusting you for things that only you can do. I wanna be radically dependent upon you in such a way that you bring radical renewal in my life and through my life to others. May we be a people who live reflecting the truth, the absolute truth that God is triumphant, that his church is triumphant, that persecution will come, but it will not thwart the the church, and that we get to be a people of prayer, even in all of our fragile faith, to watch a God do what we don't expect him to do for his glory in such ways that stretches us to depend on him more. How awesome, how awesome that we get to be the church in the face of persecution through the means of prayer. Father, we thank you and we pray that you would indeed make us those people who are so steadfast in our gaze upon Jesus, our King, our triumphant King, that we're also steadfast in our faith, whatever you may bring. And even now, oh God, as we come to the table and as we rehearse yet again the gospel here in these elements, would you meet with us? Would you spiritually nourish us? We are a people who desperately need it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.